Lord, life is hard. But you are so good and you have given us each other. Through your word, give us that gift now all over again. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. This fall, as you know, we've been working our way through a sermon series that's on the various images and metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe and help us understand the church. Up to this point, we've been looking at images that primarily have to do with how we relate to God. But today we turn our focus to two key images that have to do most with how we relate to each other in the church. We're shifting from what you could call the togethers that we're called to, the things that we're called to do side by side with one another, worshiping together and praying together and studying scripture together as people who are saints and children and uh, who are priests. And we're shifting to the, to the one another's, to the ways that we are called to actually relate directly with one another. Things like honoring one another and encouraging each other, serving one another, forgiving each other. This Sunday, we focus on church as family and on loving each other as brothers and sisters in the family of faith. And next Sunday, we'll focus on church as body and on using our gifts and our resources to serve each other as members of that body. So this is the part of our uh, fall sermon series that brings us back closest to our summer experience. When we worked really hard to, to try to create opportunities for us to grow in our sense of usness, of being part of this larger thing that is called the church, and also for us to have a chance to, uh, to actually be able to meet some new people and form some new connections with others in the church family. Before we look at this uh, new image, just a couple of comments about this summer experience. It uh, has come to our attention that we really haven't done a very good job of sharing with you what we've done in terms of processing the summer experience and the survey results. For all that we have told you, it would be easy to conclude that we've just kind of, the experience came and went and we're on to other things. But we want you to know that we've actually spent quite a bit of time since the summer ended, reflecting on what the summer held for us and what we've learned from that experience and praying about what possible changes God may be inviting us to as we go forward. The four questions that we've been asking are these. First of all, what did we actually set out to accomplish in the summer? What obstacles or resistance did we bump up against as we tried to carry that out? And then what, what did we taste along the way in the summer that was good? Maybe even some parts of the experience that we didn't anticipate? And then finally, what might God be calling us to next? So you may have noticed or may not have noticed some of the changes that we've already introduced that come directly out of our experience this summer. Things like name tags uh, every Sunday morning instead of just on the summer mornings. Encouraging lingering after the services, making that more of a part of our life together. In our adult learning communities, we have shifted so, those so that every one of those classes now has some intentional fellowship and connection time that takes uh, place during that time and not just teaching. This sermon series that's intended to bring us more deeply into God's intention for the church. Uh, testimonies that we're having, having on almost every Sunday. 
uh, and increasing other horizontal dimensions taking place during our service. Those are just some of the things that we've tried to introduce as a response to what we've seen this summer that we feel God's been inviting us into. We've made a tentative decision for next summer to, to do again something similar. And we're also prayerfully asking other questions about our Sunday morning schedule and about how we want to structure our adult uh, learning experiences and things like fellowship space and worship space and, and, uh, and more equipping that we might do for relationships and other things like that. So we'd just love to have you continue to pray for us as we keep putting those things before the Lord. All right, that said, the metaphor that we're focusing on this morning is the metaphor of the church as family, which, as we'll see, is an image that significantly informs a number of really important passages in the New Testament. Now, right away, as soon as we start to talk about this, it is important for us to recognize that there is really a huge cultural divide here that makes it difficult for us here in the modern American West uh, to, to understand what the, uh, the Bible is really talking about with this image. So here in the United States, the individual is the most basic unit of society, not the family. The family is really, for all practical purposes, just a collection of individuals who happen to be related and maybe all happen to be living together or at least using the same house as home base in their busy schedules. Though they may share the same house hub, the different members of the family tend to live fairly independent lives. In addition to the individualism and independence that typifies probably almost all of our families to a certain extent, three other things can further erode our sense of connection with one another uh, here in the United States if we're not careful. Our busyness can make being in the same place at the same time and having meaningful connection a real challenge. Our 24-7 connection to social media, always having our phones out and looking at them, can really pull our attention away from family members who are right there in the same place in the same room with us. And uh, all of us have been trained by hours and hours and hours of, of the relating that we see on sitcoms and coming-of-age movies to relate with, we've been trained to relate with impatience and rudeness toward our family members. As children letting our parents know that we find them annoying, as parents letting our teenage children know that we find them difficult, as siblings letting our brothers and sisters know we would really like to have nothing to do with them, so that our homes become morning to evening eye-rolling festivals until the kids finally turn 18 and leave the house, at which point everybody feels relief and behind that probably some considerable disappointment. Now contrast that with what many of us are familiar with. Here in the U.S., contrast that to uh, what the family was that the New Testament writers had in mind. And this may be a view that is more familiar to your own experience if you are somebody who has lived in India or Asia or Africa or in the Middle East. In the biblical period, the family was the most basic unit of society, not the individual. Everything revolved around the family. The family was defined by and centered on the father. His reputation was everything, and his will was law. And being part of a family implied a lay-down-your-life level of commitment to your brothers and sisters. You served as each other's primary community, living together, eating together, working together, and spending your free time together. Plus, you served as each other's food banks, 
lending institutions, police protection, legal defense, and social security administration. So when the biblical writers use the image of family to describe the church, they have in mind a much deeper level of commitment and connection than comes to most of our minds. So let's begin to open up this image of church as family. It begins, of course, with the idea of God being our Heavenly Father, which is a way of thinking about God that Jesus introduces us into. This, then, he says, is how you should pray, saying, Our Father who is in heaven. But when Jesus refers to God as Father, he isn't thinking in terms of all of humanity being God's children. God's children are those who have become God's people through the saving work of Christ. Listen to these mysterious and amazing words that describe that from the opening chapter of John's life of Jesus. Referring to Jesus, John writes, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. I was blessed on Wednesday night at our conversation about Christianity to watch this new birth happening before my eyes. Incredible. Believing in Jesus as Savior, putting our trust in him and entrusting our lives under his lordship opens the way for us into a relationship with our creator in which we come to know him as our father and we come to know ourselves as his children. John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. There isn't anything about this that we are entitled to or deserve. This is an act of sheer grace as we who once were strangers to God and outsiders to his family are adopted into God's family in a way that we had an incredibly beautiful picture of as uh, Daniel and Emily Sampson um, dedicated their three newly adopted children. Romans chapter 8. You received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So God is our Father, and he has adopted us as his own children. So what do you call children of the same Father? Brothers and sisters. That's what we are. John chapter 11, verse 52. I love this picture. It says, the father brings together his scattered children and makes them one. Let's just stop here for a minute and think about this. Usually when we gather together somewhere with other people, it's because we have an affinity to the same thing. Maybe we have a common interest or a common concern or a common cause. Basketball or babies or basset hounds or, or playing the bass or ballroom dancing or bike riding or something like that, one of a thousand different things that we may have in common with someone else that brings us together. We have a shared affinity, but that doesn't imply any sort of commitment to the people who share our same interest. But when we get together with others in the church, we don't just have a shared affinity. We have a shared allegiance to God as our Father 
And that leads to a shared connection, a shared commitment, and even a shared affection for our fellow followers of Christ. When God calls us his children, he tells us to call our fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. The vertical implies and expects and requires and brings about the horizontal. We don't have a choice. It doesn't matter if this is what we want. This is something that we are automatically a part of and something that we are called to when we become followers of Christ. Thinking about this idea of family and this uh, shared connection and commitment to one another, imagine what it would be like if in our own homes, we had nothing to do with each other until dinner time. We all filed into the room, sat down to, at the table together, and ate our meal essentially in silence, not really interacting with each other, and then got up from the table and left and went back into our own lives. It is a flawed view of the church if we just come, worship, and leave. This isn't a basketball game or a concert or a performance or a restaurant. The church is a family. Church isn't a place that serves up God like a meal. It is a family that gathers together in God's presence and worships him and loves each other. I want you to imagine walking into an armed forces recruiting station. Yeah, I'm here because I want to sign up to serve my country. Ah, that's great. Let's get you assigned to a unit. Wait, what? I don't want to be assigned to a unit. I just want to serve my country. Sorry. There isn't any choice. We don't have any individual operatives here. If you are in the military, you are in a unit, and you're going to live together and train together and fight together. It's part of the deal. You and I, as children of God are brothers and sisters of each other. We are part of the family of God. It's part of the deal. One of the things that we have to come to grips with as followers of Christ is the biblical teaching that the vertical dimension of our faith, our relationship with God the Father through Jesus his Son, is inseparable from the horizontal dimension. If we are Christians, God has placed us into a family with other people who know him as father, into a community of the other children of God, and he commands us to love each other as brothers and sisters. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, love the brotherhood of believers. The ERB translation captures the meaning of the Greek perfectly when it puts it this way. Love your brothers and sisters in God's family. In his book about the various images of the church in the New Testament, Paul Menier points out that the early Christians calling each other brother and sister was not only the most natural thing for them to do, it was also the most common way that they had of addressing each other. And I encounter this everywhere I go in the world. I think of the way that Doru in Romania greets me every time I see him or he writes to me. When I see him, he throws out his arms and he says, Brother David, fratele meo, welcome and throws his arms around me. Fratele meo, my brother. I think of the way not just Doru does that, but Benan in Turkey, and Nassan in Egypt, and Kofi in the Ivory Coast, and Peter in Nepal, all calling me Brother David. It's one of the greatest marks of the unity of the church, transcending race, economics, nationality, to call one another brother and sister. 
But Peter tells us not just to call each other brother and sister, but to treat each other as family. A chapter later in 1 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter circles back around to this idea, and he unfolds it, and he gives us a really practical picture of what it looks like for us to love each other as siblings. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers and sisters, be compassionate, and be humble. Finally, all of you. These are instructions that apply to the whole church, not just to the outgoing and extroverted ones, and not just the ones who may be retired or unemployed and happen to have some extra time on their hands. This is God's call on all of us. All of you live in harmony with one another. In the, the, the Greek, this is a combination word that means similarly minded. But it really refers not so much to a unanimous way of our thinking as to our unity together as a church family. It refers to harmony, which I think is a great translation of this idea. And there are two dimensions to the harmony that we are invited into as a church family. The first is a harmony of purpose. That is having the same basic aim, the same common goal. We are brought together with the same intention for the same reason, and that is to follow and serve Christ as king and to love one another as brother and sister. When we come together in the body of Christ, we come from all different nationalities, traditions, perspectives, belief systems, and living in harmony with one another in part means letting the teaching of Jesus supersede all other teaching and traditions and letting his word be the last word in our life together. The harmony of purpose and also harmony of relationship. That is getting along with one another. Working hard to stay close and to not let anything push us apart. This is the hard work of bearing with one another, of forgiving each other, of counting each other more important than ourselves, that makes the, the lasting peace and unity that God intends for the church family, it makes it become a reality. Live in harmony with one another and be sympathetic. This gets at the way that we are called to be emotionally attentive and sensitive to one another. Sympathetic really probably isn't the best translation. This doesn't mean pity, a sort of now, now, it'll be okay response. And it doesn't mean moving the conversation to you by saying, oh, I know just what you mean. Literally, the word means to suffer with. That is to enter into what the person is feeling or experiencing to share their joy or sorrow. As Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Probably a better way to translate this is be empathetic. Everybody is working with something. Everybody is carrying something. Sharon came across a quote that said something like, everybody is standing in their own pool of tears. We are called to become close enough to others to know what is going on in their lives and in their hearts. And then to open our hearts enough to them to let what touches them touch us. I don't know about you, but empathy is not in my top 40 list of things that come naturally to me. By personality, I tend to approach things in a more non-emotional and objective way. 
But by his spirit, God has incrementally, slowly been beginning to form this quality in me. And it's primarily come by having the privilege of, of watching how my wife interacts with people. I still remember uh, painfully when I was in seminary, and Sharon and I had started a small group. We were together in that group. Uh, it was a number of different people who were uh, people at seminary and husbands and wives, single people. And uh, I was doing some teaching, and then I paused when I was teaching after making a point. I said, anybody want to interact with that? And there was a woman sitting across the large circle from uh, where Sharon and I were sitting. And she started sharing. As she, as she started sharing, she began to cry. And then she began to weep because uh, as she was sharing something that was really deep and personal, all the rest of us sat in silence. She got to the end of sharing. I paused for a a moment and I said, true story, anybody else want to share anything? My uh, precious wife just reached over and touched my hand and she got up and she walked across the room and she knelt down. She just put her arms around this woman and she entered into her suffering. She let the pain of that woman touch her learned in that moment a little bit about what empathy means. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Love is brothers and sisters, Peter goes on. The word in the Greek for brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. The word refers to the mutual affection and fondness that brothers and sisters have for one another when they're part of the same family. Peter says the ideal Christian community is one that is marked by the same sort of fondness that we have for one another in our families. Last week, or two weeks ago, I had the chance to spend about an hour and a half with my sister, Mary, uh, one of my three siblings. And I described this, I want to be clear about this, I described this not as a picture of, here's how I did it, so this is how you're supposed to do it. That's not the point of this at all. I just want to remind us from this moment that was really touching and moving to me to just kind of remind us of what it looks like when we're together with people uh, who are part of our family that we love. Mary is in the middle of some significant transitions at work. So I've been calling her and I've been texting her from time to time, just letting her know I'm thinking about her. The Lord has brought her to mind. I'm praying for her. When she's had some key moments along the way, on those days, I have made a point to try to remember and connect with her. Hey, I'm praying for you today as as this meeting is coming up. When we were down in Charlotte two weeks ago, even though it was a lightning quick uh, trip down and back just really to be there for Shepard's second birthday, I made sure that I uh, had some time to be able to get with her because I knew that what she was in the middle of was pretty significant. When I saw her, I gave her a great big hug and held her and kissed her head and told her how good it was to see her. And we sat down together and made a point to put our phones away and really gave ourselves to just being present to each other. And it was a time where she was processing a lot, so I just was really focusing on her, and she let me do that, and asking her questions, and listening, and entering into, entering into what she was sharing, and she invited my perspective, and I had a chance to share some things. And then I had a chance to just say uh, to her how moving it was for me to watch the, how open her heart was to God, and, and how attentive she was being to God's Spirit, and faithful to that, and what an incredible joy that was for me to watch. And as I shared that, I began to get tears in my eyes. And then she shared back to me that 
she couldn't find words to say what it has meant for me to just walk through this with her and to, to feel so present to her in this process and, uh, and to, be, to have a sense that, that this is something we are in together. So at the end of the time together, I gave her another big hug, kissed her again, told her how much I love her and that I couldn't wait till the next time I could see her. So again, I share that uh, just as a reminder of what it can look like when we are fond of one another as part of the same family. It's interesting that there are five different places in the New Testament where we are actually told to greet one another with a holy kiss or with a kiss of love, including at the end of this letter, the end of 1 Peter. And it makes so much sense that we are directed to do that because the, the word that means to love as brothers and the word that means to kiss is from the exact same word root. It means uh, find a way to express your affection for one another. And that's what we're invited to do. Be affectionate with one another when we see each other, just like you would with your own brother or sister. It's a holy expression of affection. We are to view followers of Christ just as we would our own sisters or brothers with absolute purity, as Peter calls us to, as Paul calls us to in 1 Peter. But we're invited to be affectionate. Peter goes on and says, be compassionate. So let me ask you this. How do you view the weakness or struggles of other people when you encounter them? What comes naturally to us, I think, is to respond in a guarded way. Maybe to be dismissive of the needs of the other person, or maybe to steer around them because we don't want to be burdened by those needs. Or, even worse, we can look down on those who struggle as though their struggles reveal that we're actually better than they are because we're not struggling like they are. God calls us to a radically different sort of response to the need and the weakness that we encounter to the same sort of patience and understanding that characterizes our Heavenly Father as he relates to us. Remember in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God reveals his goodness to Moses, and the first word out of his mouth is compassion. This also happens to be a family word in the Greco-Roman world, referring to the patience, the understanding, the loving consideration that we show to our family members when they have a need. This word can also be translated tenderheartedness, which I think is a beautiful picture of what God invites us into. It captures perfectly that day in and day out, bearing with one another over lots and lots of years, patience and kindness and understanding that we develop toward others who are part of our family. And then finally, Peter says, be humble. This final quality answers the question, when you and I come into the same moment, which of us matters more? Humility in this context means that we don't have an elevated sense of our own importance in our dealings with each other. We're not putting our needs ahead of one another's needs. We don't see ourselves as deserving special treatment or coming first. This is contrasted to the tendency in our culture, which I think we see a lot, particularly even in the Christian community, of seeing ourselves and our needs as more important than the community and its needs. So if my needs are no longer getting met, well, I just sever my ties and I move on to another community where I believe my needs will be better met. Or I just drop out of the cost and the messiness of Christian community altogether. Humility, a key Christian virtue, is a perspective that says we are all fellow creatures. We're all dependent upon God equally for life and breath and everything else, that it would be presumptuous of us to see ourselves as more important than anyone else. 
And because of that perspective, we have the freedom to love each other, to, to put each other first, even if that costs us. So it turns out that the key question in all of this business is really how willing are we to let others into our hearts and into our lives? Isn't it? Imagine a wall between you and the person you're interacting with. I was talking with some people between service and I said, I think all of us have some version of a wall that's there. How porous will you let that wall be? How much of you will I let in? And how much of me will I let out? Hey, oh, hey, good to see you. Having a good day? Yep, real good. How was your summer? It was good. How's work going, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, things are good. And how's your family doing? Oh, good, yeah, yeah, they're, they're all good. Well, glad we got a chance to catch up. Yeah, good talking to you. Have a good day. I've heard conversations like that around here. I've had conversations like that around here. Love is risky. Open our, opening our hearts up to one another is a vulnerable thing to do. I think God is calling us to risk moving toward one another pushing past our shyness, risking doing or saying something that may be embarrassing or vulnerable. I think God is calling us to make room for one another in our schedules, pushing past our busyness and our selfishness and our desire for tidiness and control in our lives. And I think God is calling us to make room for one another in our hearts, to carry one another around in our hearts. And to push past our guardedness and our carefulness. And to be willing to feel deeply the pains and the struggles that others carry in their heart. I'm challenged by this familiar line of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around your hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. What's God saying to you right now? What is his invitation? A couple of Sundays ago, Sharon and I were speaking with one of our covenant senior hires. As we were talking, her younger sister came up and was telling us about this incredible note that her older sister had written to her that was kind of a celebration of different things about her that she really liked and appreciated. And then off she ran, and then we had further conversation. And in that conversation, the older sister told us that in this coming year, one of her prayers is that she would be more intentional to show love to her siblings. That she would find a way to get one-on-one -on -one time with each of her siblings. And in that time, she would do that as a way to let them know that she loved them and to be intentional to encourage them.
Wow. What if we followed her example? What if we made that our own prayer for the coming year? That we would be more intentional to show our love to one another. That we would find ways to get time with each other. To deepen our relationships with one another in order that we might be an encouragement to one another. God wants to give us to each other as a gift. There is a world of gift in the person next to you. And there is a world of gift in you. And God intends to give that gift to both of you. The best way for us to give the gift of ourselves is to reach past ourselves. And as we do that, to take our eyes off of ourselves, to turn our focus inside out, to take it off of me and how I'm coming across and what you're thinking of me, and just to put my focus on you and how you're doing and what's going on in your heart and what God is doing in your life. God wants to give us the gift of each other. It is part of his design and his gift in this thing called the church. For us to be blessed, to be able to love each other and be loved by each other as brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Okay, we're going to practice opening our hearts up just a bit to one another. I'm going to invite you to take a risk with me, but I only want you to do this at whatever level feels comfortable with you. I really mean that. This is not intended to push us past a comfortable version of uncomfortable. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn to someone near you and, and feel free to move around if you need to do that to be able to get closer to someone. And then I just want you to share something about yourself that you feel comfortable sharing. You could just share something that you do, a way that you spend your time, or something that, you're, that you like, an interest you have. Or if you're willing to go a little bit deeper, you could share something that's on your heart. Maybe something that you're grateful for, or something that you're burdened by. So share at whatever level feels comfortable to you. I'm hoping that if you're married and you're here with your spouse, that you've already had a conversation somewhat like this at some point in the recent past. Um, So I'm going to ask you to turn to someone who you're not married to, if you would, please. After the other person has shared with you, I just wanted you to say something like, thanks for sharing that with me. And then uh, at the end, after you each have had a chance to share, and try to be responsive as I try to yell and break into your sharing, um, then I'm just going to pause and lead us in prayer for each other. And you won't have to do anything. I won't put you on the spot. Okay, so if you thought of something about yourself you could share, something you like or something you do, a way you spend your time, or maybe something that's on your heart, something that you're grateful for or something that you're burdened by, Find someone near you, just make sure you get their name. 45 seconds, just share one thing about yourself with the other person, and then I'll break in. To break in now in your conversation, sorry to break in. Would you please wrap up your conversation and we will have the opportunity to pray for one another. It's a beautiful day today, isn't it? Isn't it fun to enjoy each other's company? All right, would you uh, join in praying with me for the person that you just spoke with? Lord, thank you so much for this, my brother, my sister in Christ, or this person that you have fashioned and made who you love. Thanks for the things that you are doing in their life and how you are present and near to them. And we pray, Lord, that what you've started in their life, you would carry on completion. 
that thing that they've just shared with us, we pray that you would be part of that and that they would experience you in it. And we pray for your hand of blessing, your hand of grace upon every dimension of their life. We thank you for them and that we are blessed to have them as our brother or sister. We pray this together in the name of Jesus, our King. And together, God's people said, Amen. Amen.